You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. So if you read the Exodus for You book, you've probably heard a lot of what I'm going to say because this was fantastic. Um, So I'm super excited to talk through this tonight. Um, I'm not going to lie, this might have been the hardest section for me to study so far in Exodus. I really struggled on my own to study it. Um, I feel like I read it, and then I read it again, and then I read it again, and then I read it in a different translation, and I just like really struggled. I feel like I ended up with like more questions than I had answers. Um, but it was really good. I feel like I just like kept writing questions and I was like, well, how does this go with this? Does this, it just felt very like random to me. Like we were going in a narrative, we're still in a narrative, but like, just felt like this section, I couldn't quite like wrap my head around and to see what God was doing. Like I got done with my own study and was kind of working through it and was like, I feel like there's more to the picture than what I could like drum up, if that makes sense. Um, and so I was really thankful for this and some of the other things that I was working through. Um, and so we're going to get started. I have a couple of scriptures that I'd love for people to look up and read, um, as we go. Um, and so if I could get a couple of volunteers, that would be great. Um, James 4, 4, Piper, um, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Kate, that was 1 John 2, 15 through 17. And then, um, mosquito, um, Revelation 19, 1 through 9. Mickey. And then Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Eva. And then last one, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Sam. Awesome. We'll just have to scream those when I pause to get to them. Um, Okay. So as we begin, as good women of the word, we need to summarize and figure out where we are in scripture and what's happened. So this will be a group activity. I want you to just kind of start kind of calling out what has happened in the book of Exodus so far. What have we studied? Basically like big events. Like if you were to recall the big events until now. The plagues. Yep, we got the plagues. What comes before the plagues? Yes. Yep, we have Moses, and he's given a job to set the Israelites free. Then we have the plagues. Then what comes next? Crossing the Red Sea. Yep, crossing the Red Sea. And then what happened last week that we talked about? They were wandering in the wilderness. Yep. How did God provide for them in the wilderness? Manna. What else happened? Water. Water. Yep. Lots of times. Yes, <laughs> multiple times. Bitter water into sweet water and then water from the rock. We'll hit back. There's some key points from water from the rock that kind of bleed into this first part of Exodus um, in chapter um, 17. So let's go ahead and jump in. I kind of have this broken up into four parts. And so the first part is 17, 8 through 16. So I'm just going to go ahead and read that. 
says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand up on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, on one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So a couple of questions kind of popped to my mind here. And that was, who is Amalek? Why does he matter? And why do we suddenly have a battle on the scene of the wilderness? <laughs> like, it just felt like it popped out of nowhere. And I was just like, all right, we're now battling. <laughs> That's not what I expected to come next. And so um, Amlek, what's important to know about this people group, Amlek or the Amcolites, was you um, can see in Genesis 36, 12, that they're the descendants of Esau. And then the, I can never say this word. I really struggle. <laughs> I think it's Amalekites, but if I stumble over it, <laughs> bear with me. But the Amalekites can actually seen, be seen throughout the Old Testament as people who went against God. You see them the um, as the Esau's descendants, and then you see him show up in numbers and oppose the people and create conflict there and prevent the Israelites from going into the promised land, part of that story. You see them pop up in Judges. And so this battle isn't just specific to, um, it's not just like a tribal kind of conflict. This battle is actually bigger to the scenes of scripture than what can be seen here in this moment. And so we see that this not just symbolizes just a tribal conflict, but it actually symbolizes this greater conflict that we've seen throughout all of scripture, starting with Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Esau and Jacob, and then the world and the church, Israel and Babylon, the world and the church, and then God and Satan. And so we're seeing this battle between good and evil or between those that are for God and those that are against God. Um, and so now we see that that's kind of the setting for this fight. Another interesting piece about this is just a practical piece in that the Amalekites and the Israelites could not both dwell in the wilderness there practically. There was not enough to sustain both people groups. And so I feel like a lot of things can be pulled from that, that we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve God and something else. We either serve God or we serve ourselves. Um, and so... Okay, I will turn the volume up. Um, and so another important thing is now we see the importance of Moses' staff. If we look back and see in Exodus how God has been using the staff of Moses, we see that the staff has been the way in which God has been bringing his judgment to people who are pridefully opposed to him. And so we see that in the plagues, Moses uses the staff to bring the plagues in judgment over, is, over Egypt. We see that in the crossing of the Red Sea, that 
God brings his judgment upon the Egyptians by Moses' staff and the water coming down. We saw last week the water from the rock, the staff struck the rock, but who was on the rock? It was God who absorbed the judgment on our behalf so that water might come from the rock and heal them. And so here we see that the staff here is also a sign of God's judgment. When it's lifted high, it is when the Israelites prevail and they are winning. And when it's brought down, God's judgment is against the, or I think it might be the opposite. I apologize if I got that backwards, but oh, okay, great. Um, and so we see that it's God's judgment against the Amalekites. And so we see that those who oppose God receive God's judgment and those that are with God receive God's life by means of himself or through Christ. Yes, absolutely. So we see that those that are opposed to God are the ones that receive God's judgment. For those that humbly walk and are on God's side, they receive the grace and the wellspring of God's life by means of Christ or himself. And so then we keep going. And it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under the heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Here we see two kind of promises or prophecies, which is interesting because in verse 14 it says, God says, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So he's going to get rid of the Amalekites forever. Then in verse 16, it says, the Lord will have war with the Amalekites from generation to generation. And so he's saying that one day there will be a victory over the Amalekites as a person, but also there will be this greater victory because we know this symbolizes a greater battle between God and Satan. And so we see that this is a foretelling that one day we will no longer uh, struggle with um, Satan. And then also in verse 16, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So we also see that throughout the Old Testament, this people group will continue to show up. We see them show up even in the book of Esther. Um, the Agog, his name is after the Amalek king. And you can read that in the Exodus for you. And so we kind of see the Lord is predicting that these people will come up against Israel in the future, but that he will eventually block them out forever. And so I think those two things are an important promise to see that in the middle of that, um, Moses builds an altar and calls the altar, the Lord is my banner. What does this mean that the Lord is my banner? The Lord is my banner, I think, symbolizes the presence of God with his people um, it also shows a rallying cry of we are with God. He is our banner over us. So we as a church and as the Israelites can come underneath God's banner and he is our victory cry, knowing that one day he will eradicate sin and Satan from all of the world. And so we can hold on to the Lord is my banner, um, that he will one day eradicate evil. And so, um, 
presence and allegiance are kind of the two things that you can think of. The Lord is my banner. And so the verses that I wanted to pull out here were James 4, 4, whoever has that, if you will read that. And then 1 John 2, I think Piper, that's you. If you'll scream it out, that'd be great. Awesome. Thank you guys. So in those two verses, we see that same battle that we've kind of been talking about that this battle represents is that battle between sin and the people who are with Satan and the people who are with God. And so um, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so if we are with God, we receive eternal life. If we are against him, we receive God's judgment. And as the people of God, we can be rejoicing in the fact that the Lord is our banner and our victory cry. All right, the next section of Exodus in chapter 18, this is where for me, it got confusing. I had to pause and figure out what this meant. If you notice this in verse five, it says that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he's encamped at the mountain of God. And so if you were to look at your map of Exodus, kind of, wait, I think I sent it in the group me as well as it's in your study notes. Um, we've seen them kind of journey from Egypt, cross the Red Sea, come down into um, the wilderness and camp at Rephidim. And so they've been at Rephidim. That's where the manna came. That's where the water came. And then now we see that they are at Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And so that's what happens in 18. But then if you go to 19, it goes back in the story, verse one and two. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. And on that day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they camped in the wilderness. And so we actually see that a lot of chapter 18 is kind of pushed up into the narrative of Exodus. And so a lot of scholars think that chapter 18, the Ten Commandments have already been given. And so chapter 19 is kind of going back and sharing their journey to Sinai, if that makes sense, and before the Ten Commandments. And so I actually didn't pick that up while I was reading and it was helpful for me to denote that. The reason is, as we know in reading historical narrative, there's always a reason for the order, the type of literature, the details that are given and the character development. And so what's really important here is that this, because it's moved up in the narrative, becomes the hinge or the climax of Exodus which is really, this is like a really interesting piece because I was like, I don't understand how Jethro and this whole story is the climax of Exodus. Have you not seen what has happened in the <laughs> beginning? <laughs> like we've had seemingly some climaxes that have already happened. And so that was an interesting piece for me to look at. And so we'll find out in just a little bit why this is. So in this section, we see that um, Jethro comes to Moses, he travels to where they are at the mountain of God, and he brings Moses's wife and their sons. We don't know for sure why his um, wife and sons were sent away. It could have been for safety reasons while he was dealing with, you know, just some casual things like the plagues and an exodus, but um, to keep his wife and children safe. I don't know, um, but that could be a possible reason. 
Um, and so we see that Jethro comes to Moses and this to me like just spoke of the humanity of the <laughs> just of the narrative it says and they asked each other of their welfare and went to the tent I don't know like that's just like so casual like hey how you doing Nikki you know I don't I just really appreciated that humanity that was put in there um and so then we see that it says then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And so here we really see that Moses is testifying about God's goodness. He's sharing basically the good news of what God had done to bring deliverance to their nation. And so here we see that Jethro is a Gentile, someone apart, not chosen as a part of the Israelites, that he is coming and hearing of the goodness of God through Moses. And then we see what is his response. In verse 10, he says, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the land of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And so here we see a response of faith, humility and faith that Jethro now understands who God is. He hears the good news about what God had done for the Israelites in delivering them out of slavery, out of their sin, out of the oppression that they had in Egypt so that they might worship God. And Jethro, a Gentile, apart from Israel, hears of this and believes. And then why this becomes the climax is because we hear that God's promise, his covenant faithfulness that we've been talking about since the beginning of Exodus, really since the beginning of the Bible, is fulfilled partially here. We obviously know that his full fulfillment will happen at the end of time. But it says, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Why is this so important to stop here? It's important because what it is showing is that a Gentile, someone who is not part of God's people, being welcomed to the table with God's people, feasting on who God is in fellowship with other believers, with God's people. He is welcome in. And so this can be a fulfillment of God's promises because when he was brought, if you think about when we were studying the Passover, God had brought them out of Egypt and he had promised there was a mixed multitude. So it's whoever follows God is welcome to eat at the table forever. And so this is a fulfillment of what God is doing. He was bringing out a people for himself to be worshipers of him. And that was welcome for whoever might come to God. And that even to go back to Genesis and even the beginning of Exodus, the purpose of God creating us was that he would have worshipers throughout all of the earth. And so through the Exodus, we are seeing God bringing a people unto himself creating a new nation to worship him. And so that is why it is the climax of Exodus. It is a bridge from what has happened in the beginning 
to what is going to happen next. And that is that the Ten Commandments are given in the next chapters. Um, that a new, it's official, that a new people is being birthed that are will live under God's rule. And so you can kind of see some, you can compare actually the Amalekites that we saw from the battle in the beginning with Jethro. It's kind of like two people that you see. The Amalekites were against God. They opposed God and received God's judgment. Jethro and his heart with the Midianites, he was humble and believed God and received the feast. And so I think that we can understand that as two responses. You either oppose God and you get eternal death, or you humbly submit to God and you get eternal feasting. I suggest the feasting. Um, and so we're going to pause here and read Revelation 19, 1 through 9, and Revelation 22, 1 through 5. And whoever's reading that first one, if you'll just yell, that'd be great. Revelation 19, 1 through 9. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Mm. So we see in this verse, Revelation 19, one through nine, and it's basically summarizing the feast at the end of time, the marriage supper of the lamb, where there'll be a great multitude of people who worship God and who are feasting in the marriage supper of the lamb. And so that is why this is the climax of Exodus, is that it shows that God's people feast on who God is together as worshipers. And so then to bring us to the next section, this is uh, chapter 18, 13 through 27. Here's where we see it get a little bit specific. Um, and so this is when Jethro, uh, he observes Moses in what I like to call the wild or his everyday life. And he realizes that um, Moses is overwhelmed and that the people are overwhelmed. Um, sorry, second. Um, man, wind and noise and all the things. Um, and so he realizes that Moses is taking on too much, that he is leading the people in a way that's unsustainable for him, one, and unsustainable for the people. And so Jethro asks him and advises him to give the leadership over to men who are able. And so it says, moreover, look for able men 
from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And so we're kind of getting, because this is happening after the law is already given, they are getting the structure for how to live under God's law. And so just like the Israelites here have elders and men who are, um, fear God, most are trustworthy and hate a bribe, just as the church as well. Our elders should be, you can find that in first, um, Timothy three, one through seven. And so here we see that it's character over personality, that we should look for leaders who are fears of God, who are trustworthy, hate a bribe, that that should always be the kind of leader we look for. Um, and that those are the kind of leaders that God has in mind, who are humble and ready to lead his people. And so we see that Moses listens to Jethro and takes his advice. He humbly makes this change, which I think shows why God called him, that he was humble and ready to follow God. So this section is making a way for God's law to have a structure in and a practical outworking in the people. We see here that it's a new humanity that's being created under God's law and that God's law satisfies them and gives them the ability to um, well, we'll see this in the later chapter too, but God's law is the like boundary line by which they can live and move and have their being. Um, and so the next kind of section, I'm going to speed up just a little bit because we're getting close on time, but, um, now speeds up to right before the law is given. And this kind of gives a little more context for what has happened in chapter 18. So I'm just going to read this section real quick. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is almost kind of like the summary of what God has been doing, that he has brought a people for himself out of the Exodus, out of Egypt, that he has now saved them. He has brought, bore them up on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. Think about where they are. They are at the mountain of God, where God showed himself in the burning bush, where God has appeared, where God will give him, them the Ten Commandments. And so his presence is getting closer to who, to where they are. And so we see that this is kind of a summary. He said, I saved you, and now you've become my treasured possession among all the peoples. And that treasured possession means that we are a treasured possession, that in the king's high court that they are treasured above all things, not all things, but a lot of things, um, that they are treasured possession, um, not just for themselves though, but for the world. And so we see that coming up. It says three things that we need to know. One, we are treasured possession because of what God had done. Two, we are a kingdom of priests. And three, we are a holy nation. 
And so I wanted to talk about holy nation before kingdom of priests, um, mainly because a holy nation is one that is set apart. And so God's law and knowing God is what sets us apart. Um, and so in order to understand what it means to be set apart, we have to understand God's holiness. So what does it mean for God to be holy? It means that God is set apart from all other beings. So just like Jethro's cry, that now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, that he is separate, that he is unique, that there is no one like God. And that uniqueness in seeing Jackie Hill Perry in her book, Holier Than Thou, makes the argument that it's God from God's holiness is what flows all the other attributes. And so his holiness is what sets, sets him apart from as God, and then all of his attributes are underneath his holiness because it's his holiness that puts him set apart. He's set apart in love. He's set apart in generosity. He's set apart in compassion. And so part of God's law to the Israelites was to reveal who he is and his holiness, that he is set apart. He is like no other being. And so when we are a holy nation, when Israel is a holy nation, when the church is a holy nation, that's what it means. It means to reflect God's holiness, his set apartness. It means that when a world looking on or other nations like the Midianites or the Al Al I can never say that, Amalekites, when they look on, they see the generosity of God. They see the compassion of God. They see the love of God. They see the justice of God, the mercy of God, because we are a set apart people. Then it says a kingdom of priests. I think this is so interesting because we've seen Moses is a type of priest throughout the book of Exodus, that he's a type of priest that intercedes for the people to God. So he stands between God and the people that there might be a relationship established. And we see that Jesus is our high priest, that he is the one standing between God and us that we might have a relationship. So what does it mean that we are a kingdom of priests? It means that now we have the opportunity to be that relationship builder from God and those that don't know God. We get to be a kingdom of priests to connect those that are outside of God's people to God's people, that they might know God's holiness. And to know God's holiness is to love him because we know he is set apart from all other beings, that he is wonderful, awesome, all the things we cannot speak enough words to know God. And so it's important to see that we are one, a treasured possession that God has saved, that there was nothing that we could do about it, but that he has called us a treasured possession because of what he had done in his deliverance through the Exodus, but also through Christ. Two, that we are a kingdom of priests, that we are um, bridging the gap between those outside of the church and those um to God. And then we are a holy nation that we display who God is to a watching world. And so that is um, the importance of what God is saying. And he's kind of summarizing here before the law is given what he is accomplishing currently in the Israelites. And so if someone will read 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, that would be great. Awesome. Thank you. So this verse is summarizing the church. And it sounds so familiar because this is exactly what's happening in Exodus, that God is forming a people for himself who will live under his rule and who will be a holy nature, a treasured possession 
and a kingdom of priests. And so we see that same thing, that that is the church, that we are to be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. We once hadn't received mercy, and now we have received mercy, and now we get to display that to the whole earth. And so that concludes this session. Um, I feel like there's so much more, like literally so much more. And so go back and read it. If you haven't picked up a copy of this, definitely worth it. Um, if you have questions, let me know. Um, but let's pray.